So you got your Bible, uh, Revelation 3. We're going to finish up this series to the seven churches today. And we're going to do so by, by way of this. So one of my favorite comedians has a bit that he does with this phrase, sort of. It's just two words, sort of. And it's pretty innocuous. Like most of the time, it's meaningless. It uh, doesn't really carry a lot of weight to it. But sometimes, after uh, certain phrases, this, this word sort of, they can mean everything. So for instance, if you were to look to someone and you were to say, I love you, sort of. That, that kind of kills the mood. If you're in an emergency room and the doctor says, you're going to live, sort of. That's not what you're after. Um, if you're in the delivery room, Ladies, and you give birth, and the doctor says, it's a boy, sort of. Like, that means a lot. Like, that means everything in those moments. And it's funny because it's true, and we also know it's true in, in different circumstances, situations, maybe different organizations and positions. Like, for instance, if you're in the Marines, and the commanding officer gives you a command, and, and you look at him and say, you know what, Sarge, I... I'm, I'm just like feeling sort of marine-ish today. Like I'm not feeling it all the way, so can we just hold off? Like that's not gonna go well. It's not gonna work. In, in the same way, like on the UT football team, and that's Tennessee, not Texas ever. Um, but in the same way, um, if, if Hypel is like showing up on Saturday and the team's there and you got these like dudes that show up that barely like, barely did anything at practice. They just sort of practiced. There's no reason they should expect to get in the game. However, those guys are the ones that got in the game like the last 25 years, right? So that, like we know that there was a place for them then, but no more, all right, no more. So like there, there are all these different places and times on earth where we would say sort of is, is really ridiculous. It's preposterous. And, and so why in heaven's name would we think that the God of the universe is okay with a sort of kind of faith? Why would we think it's okay to say, I've surrendered my life to God, sort of? I'm a follower of Jesus, sort of. We know that that would be insane to say. And so nobody's gonna use any of the verses from today's text as like an encouragement throughout the week. You're not gonna send this to somebody in a card. This is probably not a part of your like super Christian email signature, like in God's grip, Patrick, Revelation 3.16. It's probably not gonna show up there because this is a very hard word from the lips of Jesus today. It was a hard word for his church then. It's a hard word for his church now. And it, not just the church gathered, but as individuals, as individual believers and Christians. So it's a hard word, but it's also a hopeful word. And so if we look back at our map, we see where we've come as far as our journey along in this series. And so we've started with Patmos, which is where the letter comes from, all the way from Ephesus. And now we're inland to Laodicea. And so this is the word that Jesus speaks to this church and Revelation 3, 14. To the angel or the elders of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So he, he identifies himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness. So anytime we say the words amen, we are saying it is true or it is so. When we say that at the end of a prayer or something we hear, amen, this is an expression of truth. And so Jesus says, I am the amen. I am truth personified. I am the standard for truth. 
And we'll see that he's saying this in, in contrast to the Laodiceans who are really out of the loop when it comes to a true estimation of themselves and the Lord and thereby the world around them. And so he's calling them out. He calls us out. And he goes on and he says, from a place of preeminence, he's doing this as the ruler of God's creation. The apostle Paul says to the church in Colossae, just a few miles down the road, all things have been created through him. That's through Jesus and for Jesus. So he's preeminent. He he is that place of primacy in all things, in all places for all times. His witness is faithful. His words are true. And it's from that foundation that he says this to his church. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. And so as Jesus has done in each of these letters, he takes a geographical specific phenomenon and draws a parallel to talk about their spiritual reality. So Laodicea is about five miles away from this place, this city called Herapolis. And if you go to Herapolis today, you'll find what Jesus was really referring to, which are these incredible hot springs. Uh, I mean, it just looks majestic. I don't know how much it costs to get there, but it's more than I've got. Um, Now, there's another picture. That could be you. That could be one of y'all for all I know, right? But that could be you just enjoying the hot springs whenever. But this was this natural phenomenon. And what would happen is these waters would flow down into the Lycus River Valley, and they traveled that five miles, and by the time they got to Laodicea, the water was no longer hot. It was lukewarm. It was tepid. It was undrinkable. And then just down the road in Colossae, they were known for having this really this uh, thriving cold water system. I mean, just brilliant. And, and yet that also wasn't going to make the Laodicea. And so Laodicea was kind of in the, in the middle. They were, they were just halfway between. And this is the relationship that Jesus is drawing And so Jesus, it's not that he's using hot water as good and cold water for bad. He's actually just drawing on what we already know, that sometimes you want that hot water. You want it to feel uh, refreshing. You want it to revive you in a certain way. And sometimes you want the cold water to refresh you and to revive you in that way. But in no situation is somebody like, you know what I'd love? Just some lukewarm water. Some room temperature milk just sets me at ease. Just, mmm. And Jesus says, that's not the kind of faith you're to have either. And look at verse 16. This is the hard word. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. And and so just imagine that your life, everything about your life is mixed together. Your attitudes, your motivations, your actions, all of it is mixed together. It's poured into a cup. And Jesus takes that cup and he expects to be refreshed and nourished by what hits his mouth. And sure enough, he picks you up, he chugs you, and as soon as it hits the back of his throat, there's this realization, this isn't good. And he immediately vomits you up onto the ground because of what your life tastes like. No decorum, no politeness. The only thought and the first thought is, this is undigestible. This is no good. And so any honest person who says, I am a follower of Jesus has to ask themselves the question, what about me? If Jesus were to pour my life into a cup and drink, what what would he think? Would he be satisfied? Would he be fulfilled? And as you reflect on that, there's a question that is answered in this text, which is how does one become lukewarm in the first place? How do we go in this direction? And this could be like a seminar on, hey, if you wanna be a lukewarm follower of Jesus, 
Here's the first way you could do it. In verse 17, Jesus says to them, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. And so this speaks to the Laodiceans' self-deception. They have a false estimation of themselves and who they are and what they look like in Jesus' eyes. And this is the exact opposite situation, mind you, of the church that we saw in Smyrna who was destitute socially and economically because of their faithfulness to Jesus. So why is it that in Laodicea, just around the bend, everything seems to be fine. You can follow Jesus and there's no conflicts. Like, is it just cool to be a follower of Jesus in Laodicea? Did they get a pass on all of the pagan worship and emperor worship that had to happen in order to be right in the right crowd? Well, the answer is no, of course not. What we see is that in Laodicea, and it's what happens in our lives so easily, is that their faithfulness to Jesus has become so compromised that it's indistinguishable from the so-called faith of the pagans. Their worship of Jesus is no different than the worship of these pagan goddesses and goddesses throughout the area. And so you can't tell them apart. And so these Christians are trying to keep one foot in the Jesus pool, one foot in the pagan pool. I love Jesus, sort of. I follow Jesus, sort of. And so it's not unlike me saying to my wife, baby, I love you, my whole heart, my whole, like, oh, you got all of me. I love you. But I also want a girlfriend. Yep, also want a girlfriend. You can laugh, it's not true, it's not gonna happen. But you would say, that's ridiculous. Exactly. That's not the intent of marriage. The intent of marriage is intimacy. And that happens one-on-one. And Jesus says the same is true for this relationship with Jesus. But the reality is we give ourselves over to these lesser lovers that we think will satisfy. And yet we settle for things that are too weak. C.S. Lewis points at this so profoundly in The Weight of Glory. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's us. We are so easily pleased. Settle for something lesser than what God wants for us. And I think one of the reasons, there's many, but one of the reasons that our standard for satisfaction is so low is that we take our eyes off the prize that is Jesus. I mean, how many of us could honestly say my, my primary focus like that which gets my attention when there's nothing else to think about is Jesus. Intimacy, intimacy with Jesus. That's where my mind goes. And so it doesn't have to be wealth that deceives us or distracts us. That's a great one. Wealth can very easily do it. Jesus talks a lot about it. But it could be anything that, that we would say, because this is in order in my life, I don't feel like I'm really in need. And so my, my family life is humming along And so all is well. Like we're about to go on a little trip as a family and if if there was peace in my minivan, I would think, Jesus, you've done it. Like all is well in the world because of what's happening in this odyssey behind me, you know? Like I would. So maybe family life is going great and you're like, I I don't think there's anything else. I think this is it. I've arrived. Or I'm hitting my goals at work. Life is grand. Our travel team won the world championships and we posted about it on every social media platform ever. Life is fantastic. Oh, too real? It's too real, right? And so we start thinking like, because this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, everything's great. 
I'm really not in any kind of need. I'm not dependent on Jesus. And any of those things can lead us into complacency or half-heartedness, including religion, including Bible knowledge, and the next Bible study, and feeling, oh, I'm just so close to, he, God is lucky to have me. He's just lucky. <laughs> I could be on the other team, you know. And so we get self-deceived, and Jesus uses this colorful language to get our attention. In verse 17, he says, you think you're rich, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Like, is that your social media profile? Is that your bio? I think of the prophet Isaiah, his words, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And that's sanitized. Our English Bible tends to sanitize things. All our righteous acts are like minstrel rags. That's the picture. That the best we have to offer to God, the best thing you think you've ever done on behalf of the Lord, he goes, hmm, there's a special bin for that. Now, does that mean nothing we do ever pleases the Lord? Of course it does. That's why he gives us commands to follow and a life to strive after in following in the steps of Jesus. But it's to give us this awareness to have this posture like Isaiah did when we come before the Lord to say, woe is me, I'm unclean. To say like the apostle Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Only Jesus. And so Jesus goes, look, you're, you're not wealthy, you're wretched, you're pitiful, you rely on mercy, you're not good enough on your own. You're poor, you're no better than a beggar. You're blind, you do not see things as God sees them. And so our vantage point is obscured because of the sin in our lives. And he says you're naked. We're, we're completely exposed before the Lord. And if we're honest, we feel oftentimes like Adam and Eve, like we're trying to hide in the garden because we know we're not living the way that God has called us to live. And so as you hear this description, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked, how does, how does that make you feel? Because I'll tell you one, my, my initial instinct is to explain why this couldn't possibly be referring to me. Well, Lord, here, here's why, you know, I know you're talking about other people, but we're cool. <laughs> and so I conjure up reasons why, but deep down it's true that I'm easily deceived. It's why the 20th century British evangelist Leonard Ravenhill said this. He said, there are three persons living in each of us. The one we think we are, the one other people think we are, the one God knows we are. Like God's not fooled. He's not fooled. And so this honest estimation of ourselves begin by listening to the honest evaluation on the part of Jesus. And so would we be so brave as to just ask ourselves and to lay our lives before the throne of God and say, is there anywhere in my life that I'm half-hearted, that I'm lukewarm, that I'm feeling saved and satisfied? And maybe this is the, the most pointed question. Do I give thanks for being forgiven from the penalty of sin without fighting against the presence of sin? Are you actively engaged in war against the sin in your life? So spoken or unspoken, I know some of y'all are new to the South, welcome You'll start to see this a little bit. But especially around here, salvation can be treated so often as this one-time transaction. I gave Jesus my sin. He gave me his holiness and righteousness. We're good. I don't have nothing else required. And okay, yeah, that's grace. But that's a different version of grace than what Jesus is speaking of. Because he would say, don't be lulled into complacency thinking that there's not ongoing transformation that happens. 
as we are in relationship with each other. And that's why Jesus says this to the church in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy for me. You think you're wealthy? Buy for me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. White clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. And what we see just in that one verse, amongst other things, is that everything that we need, we can't actually go buy. Everything that we need to experience the fulfillment, the satisfaction, and the relationship that our hearts long for is only offered by Jesus. And it's offered freely by Jesus. And so he says, gold refined in the fire. That image of refining is used in the Old and the New Testament. Talk about trials and tribulations that we go through. And in those, in the heat of that fire, the, the dross and the, the ugliness and the mess is melted away from our faith so that what's left is pure and valuable. And so Jesus says to the Laodiceans, it may be, and it may be for some here today that you aren't gonna experience the joy of faith until you've suffered greatly. Until you've had the ugliness melted away by this fire. And therein you will find true wealth that will never fade, treasure that no one can take from you if you have this gold or find in the fire. He says, buy white clothes to wear, which symbolize, we saw last week, they symbolize just untarnished righteousness. I mean, just oneness with God in our spirits, in our lives. And this is specific to Laodicea because they were known for producing this dark garment that they sold for good money. And so you've got this dark garment that represents all of the things that you can have in the world, all of the polo and Ralph Lauren and Lily Pulitzer you can buy. And God says, in my economy, that stuff is worthless because you can be dressed in the finest the world has to offer and be completely naked and exposed before the God of creation. And yet the beauty of the gospel message, the heart of the gospel, is Jesus looking at you and me and saying, I will cover your nakedness with my own nakedness. I, as I was exposed to the world, I will cover your shame with my shame once and for all. I will do that if you stop pretending like you can do it yourself. You'll be clothed in perfect righteousness, which no one can take from you. And lastly, Jesus says, purchase this salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. And I, honestly, I think of the three, this is the one that is the most pertinent for today. Salve so that we can see rightly. Because we are so enlightened, aren't we? Aren't we? We're, I mean, the enlightenment was great. It just, got us, it just got us going. But we've really taken it and run with it. I mean, think about all the progress we've made. And there have been like legitimate progress. There has been legitimate progress. But it's like every day there's, just, there's like new studies and new findings and now there's this and now there's that. And I cannot help but think of the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy that just as a society, in 2 Timothy 3, it says, we're always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Always learning Always more information, always new findings, always new studies. Oh, we've unlocked this. That's fantastic. What does that mean? Well, we're not sure, but it's gonna show. But never arriving at truth. And so there's this stream of new information and new findings, and it's usually wrapped in the packaging of progress. And so who's stopping to ask the logical question, to what end are we progressing? Toward whom are we progressing? 
Because at, at the end of the day, if it's us, if we are the ones that are becoming God-like and fashioning this kind of law as unto ourselves, we're antinomian and we just get to do whatever we want, when we want, with whoever we want, then we're, we're going in the wrong direction. So are we making much of ourselves or much of Jesus? Because just listen to commentary for a little while. Just around you, get in conversations and listen. It's not, it doesn't take long to hear. I mean, people are struggling to figure out what truth is. So Jesus says, we need this gospel salve. We need the heavenly ointment on our eyes to be able to cure this vision, this poor vision, to see Jesus as the standard of truth and everything in relation to him. And again, the beautiful part of this, of this invitation is Jesus goes, the only way you can purchase this is to come to me with a willing heart because you actually have nothing I need. I've got everything you need. You have nothing I need. What I want is your heart. And I'll give you all of this in return. And it's the same offer God has been making to his people for thousands of years. This is Yahweh speaking to the half-hearted people of Israel and Isaiah. He says, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. He's like, you got nothing. I got everything. Just come. Just come, being willing to come. And at the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus takes this word from Isaiah and he heralds it to any who will listen. It is done, he says, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. We have nothing to bring to the equation except our sin and if we're willing, a willing heart. So it's 100% Jesus 100% grace, but it is not a cheap grace that Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about. It's a costly grace because it costs Jesus everything. And so it comes with an expectation. It comes with a demand for devotion. And so it's a hard word. It is a very hard word for Jesus to his church, but it is a hopeful word. Unless you think this is like a scourging from just an angry father, Listen to the heart behind this. In verse 19, he says, those whom I love, and the emphasis is on the I, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. That's the motivation. The motivation is to say, it's, I, I, I'm undyingly devoted to you. And having worked in education for years, there's a trend and it's still going. I, honestly, I thought maybe it would, maybe it would stop Maybe we could be part of that, but it's a trend whereby parents want to be really good buddies with their kids. And I'm not talking about like junior, seniors in high school where you're starting to make that transition or like adult children, but like elementary, middle school age kids. And it's ultimately damaging for both of you in the relationship, but especially for the kids because they start seeing you as peers. And so then when you have to say a hard word, it's like, I, whoa, how could you? I thought we were friends. I mean, there's really been no boundaries or anything. Where, this feel, where is this coming from? And they don't even have the, the wherewithal to be able to, to vocalize that. They're not emotionally there, but it's, it's in there. I thought we were equal. But, but praise God, he's a good father who looks at us and goes, look, we're not the same. We can be friends, but I have expectations. There are demands on your life if we are going to be in proper relationship. 
and the expectation is that you will listen, that you will respond. And as we come to know the heart of God the Father, the more deeply we understand that everything is coming from a place of love. Everything is coming from a place of hope that was surgical precision. Like we sang it in the song, that our hearts needed surgery, that with surgical precision, he cuts into our lives with his living word to get at whatever is not right, whatever is not healthy, and to cut it out. So Jesus rebukes, he redirects those he loves from this place of longing. And then how are you to respond? In the rest of verse 19, he says, so be earnest. Some of your translations would say zealous. Be earnest and repent. That word for earnest is the, is the same Greek word for to be boiling hot, to be white hot. And isn't that appropriate in view of what Jesus is talking about, what he's condemning? He says, you don't, don't be lukewarm. Be, be white hot with your affections for me. For Jesus, let what is happening in you and through you that God is doing, let that raise the temperature of your faith and let it stay there. And as that happens, Jesus says, you can repent, you turn away from, you reject these half-hearted attempts to sort of follow Jesus. To be a Christian, kind of. To say, I don't want my spouse and someone on the side. I just want my beloved because my beloved wants me and to be devoted there. And as the end of Revelation points to, Jesus is the groom who says to his bride, to his church, to you and to me, you are the one who's been unfaithful. I've been here all along. You're the one that's been unfaithful. I've been unfaithful. But Jesus comes to us and says, but you've never gone so far that you're beyond my reach and I still want you. And so even though the door is locked from the inside, Jesus comes to us and he says, verse 20, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person. That's intimacy and fellowship. And they with me to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. So Jesus comes to the door and it's not this like little timid tap. He pounds on the door because he knows where you are. He knows where the affair is happening. And he comes to the door and he pounds the door and says, I'll take you back. Like, I, I want you, I want nothing but you, let's go. And yet he's not gonna force it because you can't force intimacy. And so he says, fellowship with him is yours to embrace or reject. But then he goes beyond this and he says, it's not just this intimacy, it's, it's the victory. It's the conquering together. This is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus identifies himself as one of us, as a fellow conqueror. And he says the, the craziest thing, that you and I could sit on the throne of God. It's in the Bible. But can you even imagine it? I mean, like, seriously, try to imagine yourself sitting on the throne of God. It's hard to do because it doesn't feel right. And yet Jesus says, no, this, this is your future. This is what you're being invited into. And I think some of why we become easily lukewarm is that as we've gotten older, as we've gotten educated, our imaginations have atrophied. We don't know how to imagine anymore. We can't fathom what God could possibly want for us. It's better than what we can fashion for ourselves. But if you think about the people in your life, and I, I hope you can think about a person at least, 
the person in your life that you would point to and say, I think that's the person I know that loves Jesus the most. I think that's the person that's the closest to God. My suspicion would be that that person, woman, man, maybe child, often envisions and imagines being in the presence of God, of being fellowship in fellowship and intimacy with Jesus. And that drives their deepest desire in this life. And there's this crazy thing where there's this mutual relationship that we get from the scriptures. The sense that we get is that the, the more passionate you are, the more white hot that that intimacy is in this life, the more satisfying that reunion is going to be. the more fulfilling it's gonna to be to be in the arms of Jesus, in the presence of Jesus. And so that's why he's pounding on the door because he's trying to offer us this infinite joy and we're playing in the mud, thinking all is well. So Jesus doesn't want part of us, he wants every bit of us, which means he's willing to bring us down off our high horses if necessary. Thank the Lord. Because if we just look around and what we know of ourselves, there are some of us who gallivanted in here with a very proud heart for one reason or another. And Jesus loves us enough to knock us down to the ground. And once we are there, to bend down and pick us up with his nail-pierced hand and say, now let's follow me into what I have for you. But only those with ears to hear will listen and respond to this invitation to come to the table and Jesus is the one who's got your name tag there. He'll, he'll pull your seat out for you. He's put a feast in front of you. And this is where all of history is headed. This is the end of John's vision in Revelation. <clears throat> then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And the reality is every single individual is invited, but not everyone will accept. Not everyone will RSVP and take their place. And so what a vision of what is to come that those who've endured with Christ would gather around that table and celebrate with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and just feast and tell stories and laugh and celebrate together. And you could be certain that on that day, at that meal, there will be no lukewarm beverages. It will be delightful. It'll be what you have longed for your entire life on this earth. And what if, what if, to match the reality of no lukewarm beverages on that day, what if on this day there were no more lukewarm believers? What if on this day God looked over this fellowship and those online and said, these are a people who are white hot in their affections for me. These are a people who know what it means to follow the way of Jesus and to make him first place in his life, in her life, and in their life as a fellowship. And the only thing keeping that from being a reality is you and me. Because Jesus is right there. And he's saying, let's do it. Let's do it. And so we're gonna sing just a song of response that's absolutely perfect. And, and look, your heart may not be ready for it. You may not be able to say it honestly. And if that's the case, don't. J just reflect. 
just pray. Like the Spirit of God will help you get there if you're willing. But these are some of the words that we're gonna sing to Jesus. You deserve my full attention, nothing less than my devotion. Speak to me and I will listen. I'll give you everything. I'll give you everything. And that is my prayer for every single one of us, that we be able to say to Jesus, I'll give you everything. I may not like it. I may not want it to be the case. But whatever has to happen, I'll give you everything. Would you pray with me? Father, as Isaiah said, we come before you and we recognize our, our uncleanliness, that we are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked, apart from you, Jesus. And God, I pray that it be true for every man and woman, every child, that we would be able to say we've accepted and received the invitation to buy from you what only you can offer and to do so by your grace. So Holy Spirit, as we sing, or as we sit in silence, whatever it may be, God, you know where our hearts are. And so I pray that it would be true for each one of us that we could declare that you are the one we desire, that you are the one that we will give full devotion to. Because we've seen that you are devoted to us. Lord, even here in the rainfall, we recognize that your goodness and your grace falls on the just and the unjust, the righteous and the wicked. And this call of grace goes over everyone. It goes through every ear. May we have ears to hear. We pray in Christ's name, amen.